Um, We are going to jump in today to Ruth again, chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 16, if you want to turn there. But before we do, I just want to pick up uh, where we left off last week, just for a, a point of review, to remind you that 15 times in chapter 1 alone, the word repent or the return, excuse me, is used in some form or another. And when the Holy Spirit repeats himself like that, we need to stop and look and listen. The Hebrew word is pronounced, as best as I can do it, shuv. It's spelled S-H-U-W-B. But sometimes the B will make that V sound, so shuv. And it is an action word with a variety and a variation in shades of meaning. But it boils down to turn back. As I said last week, the New Testament would call it repent. And we see that Naomi, the first time that we we get a glimpse of what it looks like to turn back is in verse 6. It says, then she, speaking of Naomi, arose. Y'all, that's step one in repentance. You get up out of the mess that you're in, and then the next thing it says is that with her daughter, daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab. She's got to get up out of the mess she's in. Step one and step two is 180, a 180-degree turn and start moving back to your first love. The father sees you while you're still afar off, and he runs to meet you on this road of repentance. And I believe, for me, the most important aspect of repentance, as far as I have experienced in my life, is not what I am turning from, but who I'm returning to. And way over in the book of Revelation to the church of Ephesus in chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, Jesus tells that church, and you know, you're a body of believers, you're a church, but I am a church standing here all by myself as well. So you can apply this to a group, but I certainly apply it to me as an individual. And he says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I am coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Repentance is sometimes the hardest and simultaneously the easiest thing to do in the wide world. Because as I said, the Father sees you when you're still a far way off, and he runs to meet you on that road. Last week, we talked about the kind of rest that Naomi wanted for her daughters-in-law. And it seems, in my experience again, that both prodigals and the unsaved are alike in that they must grow weary of their sin before they're willing to give it up. And Jesus longs for us to grow weary quickly. And then he is race-ready to the call. Matthew 11, 28, come, come unto me all You who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you exactly what Naomi wanted for her daughters-in-law. Rest, take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you, here's your promise, you will find rest for your souls. You have had your whipping out in the world when you're a prodigal. When you come home to the Father, it's the robe of righteousness and the ring of sonship and the welcome party 
The Lord is so thankful to have you back home. He knows you got your whipping out there. So he will greet you with love and kindness, gentle and humble, just as he has promised to do here. And you will find rest for your soul. So if that's you today, don't wait another day. Let today be the day where you get up out of the mess you're in and you do the 180 and start walking. And you know that before rest comes return. You can't get those things reversed. Orpah did some returning of her own. She went right back to the idol-worshiping people that she grew up with, and we never, ever hear from her again. But Ruth, however, oh, sweet Ruth, she clings to her beloved mother-in-law. And I see a parallel between those two women, between Moab and Orpah and the spirit and Ruth. In Romans chapter 8, verse 6, it reads, For the mind set on the flesh, that would be Moab, is death. And that would be Orpah. But the mind set on the spirit, oh, that's where we want to live and move and have our being because that is life and peace. And that is a picture of Ruth. So she is going to give us now in this opening few verses, one of the most universally appreciated declarations of steadfast love. Countries around the nation, if you, in fact, Benjamin Franklin did this years ago. He was a member of a club in Europe called the Infidels Club. And it was their purpose to bring together literary works and read them and critique them. And one night, he brought the book of Ruth, changed all the names, and read the story. And this group of infidels praised it as the most beautiful story they'd ever heard. Where in the world? What's your source? And he said, the Bible. So it is universally appreciated for the sublime beauty of her declaration of love to her mother-in-law. So in verses 16 and 17, we read, But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. She starts it off, do not urge me. Urge is an interesting word. In the Latin, that's where we get the word urge. It means to press hard, to force, to push, to shove. The Hebrew word that's used here is pagah, and it means to strike or to push. So can you picture this in your mind? Here is Naomi forcing, compelling her two daughters-in-law, go, go back. You know, it's not like this, y'all go on home now. She is compelling them physically to leave. And I just see Ruth turning and clinging to her mother-in-law. No, do not urge me to go or to leave you. Isn't it a beautiful picture? So powerful. So she's hanging on tight to her mother-in-law and she declares, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. By definition, a lodge means spend the night. It's a very temporary stay. These two women are going to be hoofing it back the whole long way to Bethlehem, and they're going to have to camp out overnight as they go. She says, your people shall be my people and your God, my God, where you die, wherever you die. And y'all, that could be on the road home. Wherever you die, that's where I'm dying. 
and that's where I'm going to be buried. And if anything but that death parts the two of us, then the Lord can do whatever he wants with me. Isn't that beautiful? Have you all ever played Monopoly, anybody? Okay, A, I hate Monopoly because I think when you start a game, the end should be near in sight. And I don't like this protracted, you know, three days later, 10 days later, the board's still up. That drives me bananas. I just say, here, I'm bankrupt. Have a fun day. But if you've ever played Monopoly, or maybe you yourself, you're an athlete with a highly competitive nature, or you know one, you will know intrinsically what the name Ruth means. Because if you have someone with that win-at-all-costs attitude, we call them what? Ruthless. Uh-huh. So you know what the name Ruth means by that negative. Her name means friendship. And those win-at-all-cost people have no friends. They are without Ruth. They are friend friendless, ruthless people. Not that we don't love them back, but just don't play Monopoly with them. And I want you to front here. We're just starting to see the matchless beauty and the incredible character of our heroine and never lose sight of the fact that she is a Moabitess. She is the girl from the toilet bowl. And here she comes from that idol-worshiping, bloody, uh, cruel culture that has an awful ancestry. And she's turning her back on all of that to follow her pleasant mother-in-law into she knows not what. She is willing to lay down her life in sacrifice to Naomi. Greater love has no, no, uh, no, greater love has no one other than this, that one will lay down his life for his friend. What we're going to see is that long before Christ puts on flesh to tabernacle among us, Ruth is modeling his character. She is willing to lay down her life for another. Also, when she gets across the Dead Sea and the Jordan back into Bethlehem because she's a Moabitess, the chances of her being despised and rejected are enormous. And we know that Jesus was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And so here goes this girl from the toilet bowl walking right into she doesn't know what's going to happen. Long before Christ put on human flesh, we can look at Ruth and she gives us a practical example what it looks like to be Christ-like. She knew what it was, and so did he, to live in a hostile world. She knew what it was to be in a position of hardship and brokenness and what it was to be without family, friends, being rejected, even by those that were closest to you. But she didn't wallow in self-pity. She doesn't allow those circumstances to overwhelm her. Instead, she takes her eyes off herself, and she looks to the God of heaven. She chooses this day and every day who she will serve, and she doesn't serve Ruth. She chooses to serve the Lord and practically here on earth to serve her mother-in-law, Naomi. And in doing all of that, she is forsaking all the gods of her fathers. Joshua writes about this very thing. It's kind of his swan song in chapter 24, verses 14 and 15 in the book of Joshua. He is telling us 
what the Lord has to say about this group of people crossing over Jordan into the promised land. And this is to the people of God, not the pagan nation of Moab. He's talking to the people of God, and he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. He goes on to say, and we are very familiar with his finish, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. He says, you guys can do whatever you want to do, as for me and my house. And that's a determination that you must make every day. Get up on that mountain of blessing. Ruth focuses on serving Naomi instead of herself. And she is firmly fixed in that resolve. She's going to follow Naomi wherever they might lodge. And y'all, really, it could be just on the roadside. It could be in a doorway, under a tree, in a cave. Wherever they are going to find themselves, that's where they're going to lodge. And Ruth is all in. In her fervent love for God, the God of Israel... She is prepared to step out in faith, and she just places her life in his hands. She's prepared, in fact, to give her life, if that's what it takes. And boy, that convicts me every time I'm aware of it. The next verse that we read in uh, chapter 1, verse 19, it says simply, so they both went until they came to Bethlehem. That's nine words. Nine words, y'all. We don't read anything about that journey at all. And, it, and it's easy for us to just read it like it's a piece of cake. That whole road home, I'm telling you. But you, you need to be practical and just think about what this implies. They're walking back the whole long way. There are estimates that say this is anywhere from a seven to ten day journey. And Moab, the territory, is in the uh, present day Jordan. It's about 30 to 60 miles of rugged terrain east of Bethlehem across the Dead Sea. And I stood on a mountaintop in Moab. Now, I know the topography is going to be slightly different as far as the plant life goes, because that land has been decimated over the many, many centuries. But I stood there and looked at the hills that go down to a desert floor and then across for as far as my eye could see and some little ruggedy things, because Israel and Arizona are one degree off latitude-wise on the globe. So our seasons and our uh, temperatures are going to be very similar to what they experience. One degree off. And so this journey, I kind of mapped it out. Being an Arizona native and having my mother grow up in Jerome, Arizona, I know that the road down Highway 89, if you go down from Jerome, I see the nodding heads down into the Verde Valley, through Sedona, Oak Creek Canyon, and up to Flagstaff. That kind of elevation... Walking it is basically what these two women did. Now, that's a beautiful drive. So you can't think beautiful scenery. You have to think hoofing it the whole long way. Also, the climate in both Jerome and Flagstaff is a whole lot cooler than what these women would have done. So you got to take that kind of landscape and transfer it so that when they're in the lowlands, it's like walking in the desert floor. Hot, y'all. And this, we are told, it's springtime because it's the beginning of the barley harvest. So what is our springtime like if you're out working in a field? Have you ever pulled weeds in springtime in Arizona? You, you know, you just need intravenous fluids. It can be really, really grueling. And they got to carry their own water. Water weighs eight pounds a gallon. 
I don't know if you know that. Eight pounds a gallon, and you need seven to 10 days worth of water. How much can you carry and for how long? And when you've drunk it, where are you gonna refill? On one side of the Jordan, Naomi is gonna be despised because she's a Hebrew. On the other side, it's gonna be Ruth's turn to be despised. Who's gonna let you fill from their well? Where are you gonna get the water? You see, you gotta think this thing practically, nine words, and they arrived in Bethlehem. You know, like they've been to the salon or something. <laughs> These women are working hard to get back home, and they're bearing the burden of sorrow as well, and that weighs a ton. It's a march of grit and determination because a faith walk usually is. And here they go. My God shall supply all my need according to his riches and glory, but I still have to hoof it back the whole long way. By faith, too, and not by sight, because these women do not know what's around the next corner. Robbers, thieves, uh, injury, they don't know. Water? Where am I going to get water? Plus, I'm just talking water. What are they going to eat on the road? What would you pack if you knew you were leaving home for good in Moab and you were heading into you don't know what? What would you? I mean, you think these things through practically, y'all, and suddenly those nine words take on a whole different meaning. And I wonder as they're going, because they are women, what do they talk about? Seven to ten days worth of conversation. And when did bitterness start to take root in Naomi's heart? We do not know the exact time frame in which this story is set, but it could have been as little as 100 years ago that the Hebrews, the nation Israel, crossed the Jordan into the Promised Land. And I wonder sometimes, could it be possible that Naomi was a nursing infant during those 40 years in the wilderness? Or was she possibly one of the first generation born in the promised land, a PLG1, promised land generation one. I don't know. We can only imagine some of these things, but I do think it's safe to say that during the 10 years that these two women have been together, Naomi has been a hungry, thirsty student, learning everything she could from her pleasant mother-in-law about the God of Israel. In fact, we know, we have insight into her mindset because she says in verses 16 and 17 during that wonderful declaration, she calls upon Elohim. That's the God of Genesis 1.1. Elohim. And then she refers to God as Jehovah. Jehovah is the covenant making and keeping God. And so she has enough knowledge now of Hebrew culture and the Hebrew God to call him by proper names. Jehovah and Elohim. She is has been an eager, hungry student for the word, and Naomi has been her pleasant teacher. She, by her life, her testimony, her love, Naomi, has converted this idol-worshiping Gentile from being in a land of darkness and death into life and light. And so they both went until they came to Bethlehem, verse 19. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. The word stirred means to make an uproar. It means to have an uneasy mind. And of a crowd, it means to make a tumult. The whole city of Bethlehem sees these two women coming, and there is an uproar. Now, the women then are going to chime in here. And it says, and the women said, is this Naomi? It's been 10 years. She's much older. 
She is now careworn. She is dusty and dirty and hungry and thirsty. And they don't recognize this once pleasant neighbor and friend. Is this Naomi? And I just sort of wonder, not that these women did it, and I don't want to cast dispersions unnecessarily, but I would have done it. And what's that thing she's got with her? Before I was saved, I would have been the meanest woman in the crowd, and I would have found Ruth my first target. And so I don't know if the women greeted them like that. It's a tumult, remember? And she said to them, Naomi's response to their tumult is, do not call me Naomi. Now, you can read this a lot of different ways. Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me Naomi. You know, there's a lot of shades there. You get to go before the Lord and figure out what her attitude is. She says, call me Mara. Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. For the almighty El Shaddai, the true and living most powerful God, has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me. So Naomi returned with her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess, and her daughter-in-law who returned from the land of Moab. I'm sorry. Y'all, I have to tell you, I have a little tiny bit of dyslexia, and sometimes the words just jump on the page for me. So please forgive me when I seem to say the words in the wrong order. It's just, you know, the way my brain works. So I apologize for getting that confused. Let me try again. Verse 21. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her... Ruth, the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now, I can find a lot of fault with Naomi's attitude, but I also understand it. Not condone it, mind you, but I understand it. Why are we women? Why are we always so quick to place blame? Adam was the first guy to do it in the garden, And we have been doing it ever since. It's that woman you gave me, Lord, says Adam. Things were cake before she showed up. So you you brought her. So he's got two places to place the blame in this situation. I've often wondered what it might have been like if Adam had come upon the, the deceived Eve with fruit juice dripping down her chin and said, Oh, Eve, you're in big trouble now. I'm still perfect. And I got plenty more ribs where that one came from. Can you imagine? But no, he chose then to take the fruit in deliberate disobedience to the Lord. He chose that course of action. So God is not to blame when we choose to sin. Naomi says her bitterness is God's fault. I disagree. When you see the phrase, he dealt bitterly with me, dealt and bitter, that's one Hebrew word, and it means to make bitter. I'm wondering, is she saying, God made me bitter? I don't believe he does that. We choose that. We choose to be bitter or angry or jealous or covetous or fill in your blank. We choose that. 
And it seems for her to have started back in verse 13, because what she says, what it reads is this, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. The word harder means more bitter. It's more bitter for me because, fill in the blank. God has disciplined her, yes, by allowing her to reap what she's shown. But that doesn't mean he has made her bitter. Matthew Henry writes some really piercing words on this. He says, He afflicts as a God in covenant, and his all-sufficiency may be our support and supply under all our afflictions. Here we go. He that empties the creature knows how to fill us with himself. Now, she owns... Naomi, she owns the affliction to come from God as a controversy. God has a controversy with me. The Lord hath testified against me is what she says. When God corrects us, he testifies against us. He contends with us, intimating that he is displeased with us. Every rod has a voice, the voice of a witness. And I don't know if that gets you, but boy, that hits me right here. I think, Lord, when I have done wrong and I'm blaming others and you come alongside and say, "Mm -mm, that's a rod of correction that I need to embrace and realize you are testifying against me, Lord, and you are right and good all the time. Hebrews 12, 11, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, to those who have been trained by it, afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore, y'all, we cannot lay our bitterness at his door. It's one of the things uh, the Apostle Paul tells us that grieves the Holy Spirit. You can't surprise your God, but you can grieve him. The writer of the Hebrews tells us that by allowing a root of bitterness to grow, we can cause many to be defiled. The responsibility is mine. I can allow my heart to sin. And if that's the way I'm choosing to go, I can be the cause of defilement to many. So Naomi left her house in Bethlehem. Do you know that the literal translation of Bethlehem is house of bread? In Judah, Judah's translation is praise. They left the house of bread in the land of praise to go seek their physical comfort in an idol-worshiping Gentile land. Then when they left, they measured their wealth by food. Now she's got a completely different yardstick. She says, my wealth was my husband and my sons. I went out full, but I've come back empty. Her prodigal family made those decisions to secure their immediate comfort, and now she alone is left to face the consequences of their actions. Uh, That's a hard-learned lesson in wisdom, y'all. She has chosen to be bitter, just like Adam chose to eat. And how pleasant is our God, y'all, even when we are not? When we are faithless, he remains faithful. What a mighty God we serve. And so in the face of this bitterness stands Ruth, this beautiful, humble, and I don't know that she was beautiful. The Bible never tells us what she looks like, but I know she wears the beauty of holiness. And I know that's true of this Gentile bride-to-be because I look at you 
the Gentile bride, and you are wearing the beauty of holiness too. Jesus Christ is going to tell us what it is to, to hunger for thirst and righteousness. And he calls himself the bread of life. We know that Naomi was hungry. Her, she may have had food to eat Moab, but she was starving spiritually. And now she has tasted the truth. And she's like, where else can I go? This is the God of truth. This is the place of satisfaction. There's nowhere else to go. And when Jesus is telling us about the bread of life, he's got a crowd of disciples around him. The 12, yes, but also a larger crowd. And he gives us some hard words about eating the bread and drinking the blood. And a huge group of those people turn and walk off down the road. It makes me think of what it must have looked like to watch Orpah go. And so as they're leaving, Jesus turns to the 12 and he says, you don't want to leave also, do you? And this is one of Peter's shining moments. Peter, victory in Jesus right here. He says in chapter 6 of John, verses 68 and 69, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And I see in that attitude what I see in Ruth. Where else can I go? Even in the face of her mother-in-law's bitterness and this reception, good or bad, from the citizens of Bethlehem, she's where she wants to be because she is with the God of Israel. At some point in their relationship, Naomi's pleasantness did reflect the God of Israel, and it was contagious, and Ruth was hungry for more. And even though our sweet Naomi has hit a rough patch, haven't we all been there? And she is currently not the most faithful of witness. Ruth has tasted that bread of life. And she acknowledges that life is to be found in him and in him alone. So her in-laws left the house of bread because of the famine in the land. But Ruth knew what it was like to have a famine in her spirit. And now that it's full and satisfied, she's, there's no going back. Being a faithful witness, y'all, here's the lesson for us, is so critical because we don't know who's watching. We don't know who is watching to see if everything that we have proclaimed to believe is actually true in our heart. It's easy to say God is good when life is cake. When you've got a dollar bill in your pocket and the largest problem you face is 50 cents, life is sweet. But when you've got a $1,000 problem and you've got 50 cents in your pocket, is God still good? You don't know until you're there. And that's when you prove that everything you have professed is actually true and you believe it and you are in it for the long haul because your God is indeed good all the time. Naomi schooled in the history of her people, whether she came through the 40 years or was born after, the, the images of water from a rock and manna in the wilderness and enemies vanquished, those are all fresh in her mind. And I imagine over the 10 years that Naomi and Ruth have been together, she has been telling these wonderful stories about the God of Israel. And now in her present, that past is conveniently forgotten. Her future is going to depend on the choice she's going to make to remain bitter or not. In fact, as regards bitterness, there's this great story from the wilderness wandering. It's in Exodus chapter 15, verses 22 through 26, and you may read that later. 
And what happens is this is just like three days through the Red Sea. I mean, they're fresh, brand new people through uh, deliverance from Egypt. And the Lord purposely brings them to the brink of thirst, tremendous, parched. You know how it is. Uh, and they're standing there looking around, and there's no water to drink. Well, there's some water, but it's as bitter as gall, and they can't drink it. And so what do they do? They sing their theme song. You brought us out here in the wilderness to die. See, the Lord has this exciting thing he's got going. He is just like chomping at the bit, waiting to show himself mighty on your behalf. And he's like, wait till you see this one. Wait till you see this one. See that bitter water? He tells Moses, go get that tree, that specific tree. Cut it down. Throw it into the water. Moses obeys. The water is immediately healed, mind you. The water is healed and it is made sweet and they drink and they are satisfied. Many Bible commentators liken that tree to the cross of Christ. And in whatever situation you find yourself where the water is bitter, you throw the cross right in the middle of that circumstance and situation and even the worst, most bitter thing in your life can be made sweet but it takes the cross of Christ in the center to get the job done. Temporary light affliction. That's what the Lord declares it to be. Life's bitternesses can be made sweet because God will throw his tree, the cross of Christ, into every circumstance, and we can drink freely then from that water of life. But obedience is key. In the very first place, we must be obedient. Then let's get back to our story in verse 20. And she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Because she's still calling on the name of the Lord, El Shaddai, we know that Naomi has not turned her back on God. The mistake that she's made is that she thinks that he no longer has good intentions toward her, like she's used them all up. He's still Almighty. He's still my God but he has no good plans for me and for my future. But y'all, his supply never runs out. We know that. His plans for her are for good and not for evil. And again, I say obedience is in the first place is the key. And short of that, if you can't obey right up front, repent, repent quickly. It is healing. Repentance makes bitterness sweet. So in the closing verses of this uh, of his book, the prophet Micah, gives us what it might be the voice of Naomi in this uh, situation. Naomi's hope and Ruth's heart. And I'm going to read these verses from the New Living Translation. This is Micah chapter 7, verses 18 through 20. And again, I'm reading from the New Living, and it says, Where is another God like you? who pardons the sins of the survivors among his people. You cannot stay angry with your people forever because you delight in showing mercy. Once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample, this is the part I love, you will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. And Corey Ten Boom says, and put up a sign that says, no fishing. You will show us your faithfulness and unfailing love as you promised with an oath to our ancestors, Abraham and Jacob, long ago. I was listening to Ray Steadman, Pastor Ray Steadman's teaching on this many, many years ago. And so I've paraphrased what really ministered to me in that time. What he says is it is not 
our sin that keeps us from God. It is our propensity to cling to it. It is not our past sin that hides God's face from us. It is the fact that we don't come to him and confess it. That's our problem. God is working to wake us up to our folly, our presumption, our foolishness, and he is ever ready to forgive if we but ask. Bitterness, anger, jealousy, covetousness, whatever it is that is your thing, because we all have thing, all you have to do if you want God to trample your sin under his feet and throw it into the depths of the ocean and show you his faithfulness and his unfailing love, all you have to do is ask. Can it really be that simple? Yes. 1 John 1, 9, if, and that's the biggest, most critical part, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all, not most, not some, all unrighteousness, but it starts with that very powerful word, if. If we confess our sins, whatever it may be on your plate today, know that you are serving a loving father who is just watching the road, waiting for you to come running home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift and the power of your word, and we thank you so much for forgiveness and for grace and mercy. You have indeed shown us what is good and what you require of us. We know it. Please help us do it. Help us to do what is right and good in your sight, to love mercy, to walk humbly with you, our God. And Lord, if there's any root of bitterness in us or anger or frustration or whatever the thing may be, please grant us repentance. And remove it so that we can know the sweetness and the refreshment of the living water. He is our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. And the bride of Christ said, Amen. What am I going to tell you next? Now go and sin no more. Exactly. God bless you, ladies.